It's an honor to be here. Um, in fact, I think I'm, I'm here to warm you up for an incredible two days, which I think are going to be extraordinary in terms of these sort of conversations, important conversations. And I'm going to warm you up by following on with talking about the boring revolution. Everyone talks about exciting things. I want to talk to you about boring things. Right? Everyone tells you about cool gadgets, cool technology. I want to talk to you about boring things. Now, in this context, I want to talk to you about this. How do we democratize the power to create society? As we were being told in the opening conversation, actually, we are in a massive transition. And democracies around the world are being challenged to how they innovate, how they organize themselves in a way that I think is being disrupted and being challenged by populist agenda, which is fairly legitimate. And largely, it's to do with one aspect. We often think of democracy from this perspective, the vote. And democracy is not the vote. Democracy, as you know, is actually the democratization of capital, knowledge, agency, and then on top sits the vote. Now, if this is true, how do we deal with a world like this? A world where actually the benefits of globalization have not been evenly distributed. So this, the curve behind me that you see is the elephant curve by Branka Milanovic. That curve is really interesting because what it shows is over the last 30 years, the benefits of globalization in developed economies have not been uh, sort of attributed to middle classes or the lower middle classes of, of many of the developed economies around the world. At the same time, what you've seen is a massive concentration of, of wealth actually in the hands of the few. How does democracy function or not function when these underlying trends are in play? And I think when we have to look at the challenges and the discourses that we have, I think we have to look behind the things we're talking about. And then we have to also talk about, for all our efforts and conversations, how do we deal with a world where actually this is happening? A world where effectively over the last X number of years, actually we've just not been able to handle the number of anomalies. And I think the second part of this slide will show you every, basically every major global city has in 2017 and 18 saw themselves being the center of actually temperature anomalies. We have largely failed to deal with the structural challenges that we're in the middle of. And how about this? 4%. 4% of the world's mammals are wild. That is the world we're living in. 56 billion stock of actually mammals which are for food, actually, but only 4%. How do you deal with democracy when you've got this going on? It's a UK context, but it's very similar, where what you see is actually most of the value that we've seen is being concentrated in land. Land has gone up five times in value versus every other asset class. So all those startups and everything else that people talk about, where is value actually being controlled? It's in land. How do you drive equality 
when you're always hunting for unicorns. And the conversation is about how do you drive unicorns? And put this in context, let's think about when the Industrial Revolution was happening in the UK, there were prizes being given out, right? Prizes by the Royal Society of Arts and Manufacturing for people inventing new brushes which were changing the hair of a brush so a factory would be swept cleaner, quicker, and safer. So innovation wasn't seen in the hands of the few. Innovation was an obligation and a way to think about every point in the chain. Yet our conversation seems to be obsessed with unicorns and hunting for them. How do we drive change and democracy in that reality? And I think that is the underlying question. And today, I want to pose to you three ideas. Three ideas that I think are foundational in the conversation we need to have and we need to reinvent around. Change in a complex world. As was perfectly alluded, we live in a conversation where, in the seriousness of climate change, and I mean absolute seriousness, this year we've seen it manifest in the global north in many, many ways. Yet our politicians seem to be stuck at banning straws. And the politics of banning straws, I mean, maybe not yours, but certainly mine, which is Michael Gove, had a big public conversation about banning straws. I grant you banning straws is important, right? I grant you. But in the scale of the challenge we face, it is nowhere near a sufficient response. And why is it? that we respond in that manner, and the public discourse is consumed by this notion. And part of the reason is, I want to put forward, is actually in the complexity of the challenge, we go for the obvious, the thing that is manifest in every day. When the challenge is more like this, and I, this is just an example, this behind me is a map of all the drivers of obesity done by the Cabinet Office in the UK. All the drivers and actors driving just obesity. And the reason why I put this up is I think we live in an illusion of single magic bullets, single simple solutions. The sugar tax will get rid of obesity. We need to do something simple about writing an obesity strategy, which will somehow change the world. Local authorities and city council leaders and politicians talk from this notion of simplicity, of managerial simplicity, in what is a complex interdependent world. How do we drive change? And it isn't perhaps in the same way that we've imagined the architecture of change for the last two to 300 years. Because I would like to put forward to you that we live, we've gone from living in a perceptibly, perceptibly infinite world of the 15th and 16th century, where actually our externalities never touched anything that we could imagine, to every externality now being interconnected. We have moved to living in a small world situation, where our externalities are no longer can be forgotten and ignored, but they become interdependent and part of a closal loop. In that world, how do we drive change? And that applies to everything, whether it's about children, children outcomes, children outcomes and educational outcomes aren't governed just by schools. Yet, the debate we endlessly have with ourselves is, well, children outcomes aren't great. Let's improve our schools. Well, have you seen the latest evidence? How air pollution itself, air pollution itself, takes one year of education off a child's 
uh, child's background. One year, that's just air pollution. And I'll talk to you about other things later. So how do we create the conditions for change when the drivers and, in, uh, drivers and the effects are interconnected? How do you drive change when actually we live in an illusion of the city when that is our reality? So what you'll see behind you is a massive interdependency. And what you'll see is a big yellow box called cows and grazing. And how do we become conscious and interdependent of our reality, which goes beyond the physical boundaries of Malmo or the cities we live in, which is massively interconnected and actually interconnected in fate and reality to actually that world? How do you drive change when actually there is not just one agency behind that model of change, but 40 agencies behind this change? The example behind is some work we've been doing uh, in Dubai, who wanted to turn around and say, how do you go from operating, uh, if you wanted to go and live in D Dubai, how do you go from change, which is saying it'll take six months to move to Dubai, uh, to get a job, get your child into a school, to, to six weeks? And you realize every one of those blue dots is a government agency or a database. How do you drive change in that reality? We know how to do single products, single service lines, single databases. But actually, the complexity of the world we're operating in is that. And yet, it's convenient for us to imagine a world of managerialism where I can control individually that reality. But perhaps that's no longer possible. Or this, when you look at the number of services uh, elderly, uh, uh, elderly citizens have, have access to and how they interact. How do you organize that? Or this, when you look at effectively how we look at um, homelessness services in the UK and actually realize it's a whole bunch of interdependent issues all the way from how policy itself is understood. So in the UK, if you're lying on the street, sorry, if you're sitting up at 3 a.m. on the street, you are not classed as homeless because in order to be classed as homeless, you have to literally be lying down. That is the policy, right? And actually, housing provision, which is the housing is actually, so most of social housing around homelessness isn't even about counting, it's about how you allocate public houses, which is all to do with completely different attributes. It's to do with how you allocate public goods, nothing to do with the reality of people dying on the streets, which is also very real right now. How do you deal with the scale of the problem when actually some people ask you to say, look, we want you to deal with food waste. And when you say to them, well, we looked at the food waste issue and we realized the best thing you could do was go vegan. Because it isn't about recycling little pieces of waste at the end of the cycle. Actually, when you look at the system, you realize very quickly it's our deep meat and dairy production, which is actually at the center of much of our waste issues. So when you look at a system scale, at the whole system externalities, your solutions start to change, the nature of your solutions start to change, and the nature of how you intervene has to change. And increasingly, your nature of your intervention can't be just about designing one thing. It's usually about designing things obliquely, from policy all the way to physical intervention. How do you drive that? Because too often we've lived in this convenient illusion of, who's heard the term, evidence-based policy. Well, I'll grant you this, neither Brexit or Trump were evidence-based policy, right? 
They weren't. And actually, I will argue for you that actually, I think the notion of evidence-based policy is increasingly out of kilter. Not because evidence is wrong, it's because actually how we communicate and how we build the politics of this stuff can no longer be imagined that policymakers build evidence, it goes to politicians who sell it. Actually, the cycle is completely reversed. Citizens believe something, politicians crystallize it, and that's usually manifested in policy. So if you want to change this reality, you have to change the underlying reality of how citizens, how citizens access knowledge and believe in the world. Now, what does that really mean? Well, what it really means is that if you create a life and a capacity of citizens which is increasingly precarious, where they are psychologically vulnerable, where work is uncertain, where the future becomes increasingly precarious, it is no surprise that fear becomes a very powerful political device. It is no surprise evidence is not the means of organizing. So the underlying conditions that you create in a system drives decision-making, not necessarily evidence. And yet, somehow we seem to be locked into a way of thinking around this stuff, which requires us to actually imagine a mechanistic idea, whereas perhaps what we need to do is build the conditions for progressive realities. And progressive realities cannot be delivered by just one actor or evidence. It requires movements. Why does it require movements? Well, when the reality is air pollution is impacting, air pollution is impacting the outcomes of children, yet drivers still persist on having arguments about their right to drive. And you go, well, let me just break this down to you. You are literally killing people. 900 people die in, in, in I think, in, in London as a result directly to air pollution. Let alone the particular impact on cognitive performance. How do you drive change? You have to drive change by building the politics of movements. You have to embrace and build those conversations in a completely different way. But underpinning this is a reality that innovation cannot be delivered by a strategy in the hands of the one but it has to be built by building innovation capacity at the hands of many. Now, why is that important? Because this isn't just about democratizing the means of production, the means of doing. It is about democratizing the means of innovation. And that is something else. Democratizing the means of innovation is about democratizing the capability to care, to create, to be autonomous, to be interdependent, to be conscious, to be creative. Yet actually most of our theory is organized around control. Most of our contracts, our employment contracts, are perceived around control. They're not perceived to unlock and ennoble you. When we know that every one of you is more extraordinary than any general artificial intelligence that's ever been made, ever. Do we really think we've released the full capacity of every Malmo citizen? Do we really think we've unlocked their full capacity? No. That, I think, is the fundamental challenge, that if we move into this reality of our systems, we have to democratize the capacity to innovate and care. And that means addressing all these things. And it means further 
when you work at the level of systems, you have to drive recognition, interdependency. So that big diagram that I showed you isn't about you or I commissioning somebody to say, draw me a systems map. It's not about that. It's not about me imagining myself as God so I can see the world of problems. Actually, it's about building consciousness, consciousness and interdependency of my, my reality impacting on your reality. And in that consciousness, we become actually aware citizens. We become aware not only of our sovereignty, but more importantly, of our interdependency. And in the consciousness of our interdependency, we can drive new models of change. And that reality sits quite comfortably, and I'll talk a little bit about this later, in actually the nature of how our industrial revolution is transforming. Last on that cycle, you see the fourth industrial revolution, right? So you saw pre, which is craft, and all the different stages of it. And the fourth industrial revolution looks very similar to the craft revolution, which is about decentralizing innovation, decentralizing creativity, and decentralizing the capacity to innovate all the way through. And so I think we're moving into an age that has to unlock that collective capacity to innovate if we're going to deal with the complexity of the scenarios that we have in front of us. It is absolutely critical. We need to move away from imagining that you can write a strategy for obesity to actually building the collective movements of change which are absolutely necessary. So that's idea number one. How do you deal with complexity? Idea number two is around this. Now the reason why this is important is many of you as leaders and thinkers in this space will have been aware of stuff like smart contracts and all the work that's been going on around that. But how many, how many of you are talking about smart policy? How many of you are talking about smart governance? How many of you are talking about code policy? Policy written in code. And the reason why I talk about this is increasingly we're operating in a world where governance and bureaucracy as we know it is being reinvented. Bureaucracy as we know it and governance architecture that we know it is a product of effectively the Kaiser and the German Revolution that happened. It is very similar to how it was designed then. And what we're seeing technology fundamentally do is reinvent bureaucracy. Uber has not destroyed the taxi driver. What it destroyed was effectively the cab office. Right? Well, you know, we've got a bank in, uh, a bank in Europe which is being advised by Infosys to go from 50,000 people to 800. So what we're starting to see is a massive destruction in administration and, and change in administration and how we administer and uh, use democracy. But actually our governance architectures have not really changed or evolved in those realities. How do we do governance in an age of complexity and inter interdependency? Too often the narrative is about let's burn the red tape. You know, bureau governance is holding us back, holding progress back. And actually, it's not. Governance doesn't need to be a means of control. It can also mean be a means of ennoblement, making you more noble to act in an interdependent world. How do we design governance for that reality becomes increasingly critical. How do you create the underlying trust infrastructure for that conversation? And governance in its full sense is about all these things and how they come together.
But what you find very clearly is we've seen trust declining pretty much globally for all major institutions. And without trust, there's simple things that go wrong, like vaccination rates. Vaccination rates are falling all around the world. Our ability in democracies to organize at a societal level is slowly being undermined. So I would argue to you that actually a class of innovation, which is societal innovation, is increasingly imp impeded. And that requires us to reinvent governance for the 21st century. If we don't, actually what we're finding, we will not be able to release a whole generation of technologies and possibilities into our world. So six challenges. How do you do governance in the systems world? With the illusion of you being private and your private wealth is just that, a convenient illusion. Actually, the reality is you're interdependent. I think McKinsey's did a very, a very interesting survey where they looked at the balance sheet of corporates and up to 40% of the balance sheet value of a corporate was actually about public goods, linked to public goods. So what we realize increasingly in an interdependent world, this notion of private wealth and private value is actually not that private. It's massively interdependent. How do you deal with declining trust and liquidity of power? How do you deal with the decline of our media infrastructure and news agencies, which have increasingly become attention economy organizations, driving clickbait to survive, as opposed to being able to give informed news? How do you deal with an age of new age of human rights, which I think will be foundational for, for, for having a further conversation? Our human rights as we saw them were built for an age of, of labor of machine economies, Industrial Revolution 3.0 or 2.0. They were built for ideas of humans of labor, making labor more effective. What do the human rights of tomorrow look like when we know they're going to be about care, creativity, contextual thinking, the ability to be able to make complex thought happen? What do the, those human rights look like in the 21st century? How do we deal with governance in the age of prediction? Is prediction certainty? We know where it was certainly allocation of resources happening on that basis. How do we deal with that? And this notion of zero overhead bureaucracy, the Uber phenomena. So when we start to think about this, here's some thoughts I want to leave, leave with you. Too often our governance thinking is always limited to actually just thinking about governance of us as bad robots. Humans are bad robots and we must tell them what not to do. Yet we know humans are not. Humans are, can be noble people. We can be invited to be more noble. So we know this even in traffic, right? So in traffic design, we can design streets so that actually citizens will self-control their speed and become conscious of their reality by actually how we physically design a street. If it has children's play equipment on it, people become empathetic with that reality and will self-control themselves. So not every aspect of governance is about control. It can actually be about an invitation to make us more noble about our behavior. How do we design that governance? We also know there is a governance of actually most of our corporations, which are rule-based systems, where we imagine that actually you cannot make a, a corporate, I would argue, more noble, actually. In reality, most corporates are driven by rules. How do we reinvent those rules for a machine reality? 
a reality where actually what we're going to see is machine-based learning driving some of those mechanisms of behavior. Uber, how it biases and organizes drivers. Our ability to oversight and drive oversight into that is increasingly limited. Why? Because we do not trust our government and build the capacity of many of our governments to be able to engage with this. So one of the biggest risks we face is governments will carry on writing analog laws and our corporates will be full technology stacks. And in between, there will be a private sector regulatory technologies which will do the interface. Over time, our governments and our governments, governance will no longer be able to address and understand the complexity of the problem. How do we build the capacity for our governments to understand this new reality into, that, into tomorrow? All the way through to full machine-based learning systems, all the way through to a machine-to-machine -machine economy. When what we are expecting is nearly 40% of our economy to be up to a full machine-to-machine -machine economy, which is the economics of machines trading with machines. If you look at our financial system, something like 80% of trades are increasingly done completely machine-to-machine, -machine, fully done by algorithms, never touching human hands. What happens in that reality? Governance needs to be reinvented for all those different layers and all those different conversations. What does smart policy look like? We cannot control drones through writing more analog policy. We need to think about actually how we influence drones and regulate them using smart policy, codified policy, which can open up massive opportunities of looking at parametric regulation, new ways of organizing, new notions of oaths, public oaths, smart receipts, transparency, in a way that we've never seen before. And the reason why I say this is this boring component is fundamental to unlocking our next economic realities. The Industrial Revolution, if you look back in history, was a symbiotic in revolution. It innovated our institutions at the same time it innovated technologies. So the British Standards Institute was born at the same time as technology was being in, in, innovated. Encyclopedia Britannica was born at the same time as the e evolution was going on of new technologies. So how you innovate and regulate and govern has to be deeply innovative, as well as our, our realities on the technology side of the story. And that requires us to think differently. And the reason why I give you this is this. Our current governance thinking is loosely bound. What do I mean by this? So my uncle um, passed away, and I was racing in a car to get to the hospital. I'm driving fast, and the police stopped me. The police stopped me and said, you know, what are you doing? I was like, well, my uncle's passed away. I'm trying to get there. I said, OK. I said, I have to issue a ticket. But when you get this, go to the, go to the judge and explain what happened. I said, OK, fine. I went to the judge and said, look, my uncle passed away. He said, you seem like an honest person. And he basically said, don't worry about the ticket, waive the ticket. Now, this is what I would call governance with a loosely bounded reality. My car didn't stop. My car wasn't automated not to be controlled and not to be allowed to drive. I was allowed to carry on. But actually, I was allowed to make local decisions which are particular to me in an extreme condition. Yet technology is increasingly driving this conversation to be tightly bound. My car will not be able to do more than 30 miles an hour. My car, perhaps once it's 
uh, stopped by the police, but I won't be allowed to drive it. What happens in those conversations? Do we want governance which is that way inclined? Or do we want governance which enlightens, which is about ennobling us? Which actually says to me, Indy, you're driving too fast. Indy, you will have the risk of impacting people. What does that governance look like, which is actually about inviting us to be more human, as opposed to just inviting us to be more controlled? This is a choice of about how we design the future. If you leave it up to technologists and coders, they will go for tightly bounding the system. But we do not, we know that is not the right way to do stuff, because history has taught us we cannot deal with complexity and diversity in that same way. And I think we have to start to imagine these futures through that lens. So if we are going to look at this third horizon of governance, how do we look at some of these issues? How do we make sure it's loosely coupled? How do we make sure actually new forms of actually contracts and infrastructures are on the table? Self-governance infrastructure. Deal with complexity in different ways. All the way through, how do we build legitimacy? I think building this side of the story is going to be critical to unlocking the innovation capacity that we've been talking about. And we need to do this by building experiments into this reality. So here's a plea. When people say burn the red tape and we need less governance, it's rubbish. What we need is new governance. We need to empower people to reimagine governance for the 21st century. It will be different models of governance that invites us to be different. How do we build that capacity is going to be fundamental. If we destroy governance, as we're being pleaded to around the world, everywhere seems to have a, a you know, red tape challenge, <coughs> cut a little bit of red tape. Actually, what we're doing is empowering the monopolies and the oligarchies and the wealth infrastructures to drive this conversation in the way that fits them. And what we're driving is the concentration of power in the way that we've not seen. And the unfortunate thing about a coded reality is our ability to uncode and unwind that concentration of capital and power will be very limited because we won't even be able to see that world. So it is a critical time that we empower and we empower those realities through that way. And why it's critical is everything is up for grabs in ways that we cannot imagine. Planning. Will planning in the 21st century be done as, as zonal planning? Unlikely. It will almost certainly be reinvented through outcome-based planning models using sensors. Will land rights be unlocked? Yes. Property rights, as we know them, are a bundled set of realities. If we unbundle them between current use rights, property rights, future development rights, resource rights, technology can unbundle these rights and allow them to be taxed differentially. So speculative value of future development could be taxed completely differently from actually the use value of our world. This is the opportunity on the table that technology is offering up. But we have to create the capacity for our governments to be able to open these conversations up. All the way through to looking at this world in terms of how you can finance differently, how you can look at programmable enterprises, how you can build a preventative health economy as a result of this stuff. If we want to build a preventive health economy, we are going to have to not only build the data infrastructure, we're going to have to build new accounting infrastructure. 
The reason why we don't have some substantial investment in preventative health around the world, the Scandics are different in many ways, the reason why we don't is our accounting infrastructure for states doesn't take account of future liabilities and future costs. So future 10-year costs of whether it's in the US, for example, to go to prison cost $144,000 a year. $144,000 a year. It costs about $75,000 to go to, Eton, uh, to Yale. Yeah. It costs 238,000 pounds to put a young person in a young offender's prison for a year in the UK. 238,000 pounds. It costs 65, well, less, 50,000 to put them in Eton. The reason we don't make these sort of decisions is largely to do with actually our accounting infrastructure. We don't understand future costs, so we cannot actually do the capital investment behind them. And stuff like social impact bonds are looking at changing these accounting rules. These boring things, the accounting rules. Accounting rules for all of you, right? So every one of your CEOs, and many of you are CEOs, you will have stood in front of your employees and said, you are my number one asset. Every one of you is my number one asset. The reality is, if, you are, if I ask you to show you your balance sheet and say, where are your number one assets? You'll kind of go, yeah, they're in the overheads. Because that's where employees sit. There's work going on to reinvent that conversation. Work going on to reimagine accounting where actually the human capital sits on your balance sheet in some format. There's work going on in places like Gibson in, in Canada, which is looking at putting the aquifer, which provides all the fresh water, on the balance sheet of the city. So these accounting rules are foundational, and they are going to be critical in driving the transformation that we're talking about. And all of this technology and throws up really different ways of how we drive uh, innovation. And one of the things I want to throw to you is I think one of the big transformations that stuff like smart contracts, which I would paraphrase as many-to-many -many contracts, are going to open up is actually new business models for common goods, for public goods in different ways. So it's a piece of work that we're doing in, in London looking at the High Line. When the High Line was built in New York, it created for a quarter of a block in parallel to every one part of the High Line, created massive increase in property values. Massive increase. But those property values never returned back to the common good, which was the High Line that was built. So how do you do that? How do you link the appreciation of private value back to common goods? Well, stuff like covenants have historically been the way that we've done it. How do you build smart covenants around that? Which means that every time you sell your house adjacent to the High Line, actually a small proportion of your uplift in value goes back to those common goods. That can be automated, put straight on land registry as an automated algorithm continuously feeding back into those trusts. So our cost and efficiency of building system business models will be completely different. And that will change the way we create new value. And these sort of smart contracts can fundamentally change the nature of what we design. So imagine you're being asked to design a prison. 
No longer would you be asked to design a prison, but look at actually how we treat and, and drive the outcomes for people that, are, uh, that, have been, that have offended. And that may be a completely different type of prison. It won't necessarily be holes, uh, little concrete holes. It'll be about rehabilitation when you know actually that's the real issue. So an ashram prison, brilliant example that was done in India, has 97% zero only 3% reoffending rate, 3%. Completely different environment. How would you design into that contract? How would you design every aspect of that contract to be able to re rebuild that reality? I'm going to skip a few, uh, skip a little bit around that. But what I want to talk about is why this governance conversation is foundational. And experiments around this will be absolutely critical to unlocking these realities. And how we unlock those realities, what the, rea what the implications are super critical. So, a rental agreement which is linked to the footfall of a street, which we can do right now. We're doing some experiments around this. A rental agreement of a retail store linked to the footfall of the street. So the more the footfall, the higher the rent. What happens when actually I can judge the level of the audience on the street and drive animation to make sure that audience is AB? Am I creating virtual segregation of that street? to drive more real estate value? What are the ethics behind this infrastructure is up for, up for debate, and we have to have that conversation early. The next, the third idea that I want to bring forward is this notion of beyond labor. I think this stat should be sobering, only if in terms of um, how we start to talk about this. 290 billion at the, at the risk of automation. Here's a thesis I want to say to you. I don't think what's at risk is, I think labor is being made redundant, but not necessarily humans. And we need to make that distinction. And in fact, I would argue, how do we speed that up? How do we live in a world where actually bad jobs Oh, I think there was a beautiful book called Bullshit Jobs. Recommend you read it. How do we destroy that? How do we destroy bullshit jobs as quickly as possible? And then the challenge is how do we create actually work which is genuinely open and, and creative in this possibility? I don't think the challenge is that we're going to lose jobs. I think we're going to lose a class of jobs and a class of employment. And as I said, the real risk is in the middle. I think the real world we're about to move into is a post-managerial world. As we saw post-industrial cities, if you look at where the wage destruction is, it is actually in your middle classes. It is a destruction of that middle economy that we're about to see. It's not going to be the craftsman on the, on, on the bottom or the plumber. It's the middle economy. How do we deal with that is, I think, really important. But in order to deal with it, I think we have to challenge ourselves with what we think and what we understand by being, being human. Because actually the science of being human is far in advance of actually our policy and our political realities. What's the world look like when we know the effects of poverty transmit through generations? Genetically. What is equality? What is justice? When the science is telling us this is true. 
we conveniently talk to ourselves about meritocracies, which we know are completely rubbish. The notion of a meritocracy is just an illusion of fulfilling your own ego. Because the reality is every one of us that has in any way succeeded has succeeded on the shoulders of networks, capacity, good support, good relationship, extraordinary institutional infrastructure, and then this little bit of thing called talent. And it would do us all a lot of good if we just started to talk that way. Rather than imagine our talent as this, it's not. That's my talent. I sit on the shoulders of extraordinariness. But what does justice look like when we know this is true? What does justice look like when actually you know scarcity and poverty actually directly diminishes your IQ? And you make bad decisions. You put any of us into high-stressed environments, our ability to make decisions cognitively is impaired significantly, up to 13 IQ points. What is the fairness of an exam when a child is in those different conditions? What is the fairness of a child when actually if they come from a stressed household, stressed household, they will not, even if you give them the same nutrients, they won't absorb them? Biologically. Those are just the, the, one aspect of reality. Second thing is actually the illusion of me as an individual. You often hear this conversation, I am an individual, I am me. Well, it's kind of nice idea, perhaps a little out of date. What is it? I think less than 10% of me is human DNA. 10%. I am a symbiotic organism living in massive interrelationship with lots of other organisms that keep me healthy and well. Without them, I would not be very good. And the other reality is, actually, my cognitive patterns are actually a product of my friends and peer group. They aren't even just mine. Shed. So if we know we're temporally linked through, genet through genetically through time, we also know that we're spatially linked in terms of our cognitive patterns, our biological realities. How do we deal with that world? How do we deal with this world? When we know, actually, in terms of emotional scars, the impact they have on our cognitive performance. Emotional violence has massive impact on our ability to think and care and create. All the rich cognitive functions that we need for the 21st century are massively impaired by these things. How do we operate in a world of this? This is a brilliant piece of research by Dr. David R. Williams in, um, uh, in North America, who basically did a 10-year longitudinal study on looking at the impacts of why black Americans were dying, equally educated, were dying in advance of their peers, 10 years in advance of their peers. What did he find? He found that actually it was the effects of everyday racism. Everyday racism, not banging people on the head, but the small microviolence. And you've all felt it, right? You know that moment that you have a shitty conversation with your manager or somebody has an ab abusive conversation with you? What actually happens is pieces of, you get raised levels of cortisone in your bloodstream. That cortisone that soars through your bloodstream actually makes you more susceptible 
over persistent periods to diabetes, heart disease, blood pressure, all those chronic issues. And over a longitudinal effect, that is literally killing people. Now, if I was to take you up on Starship Enterprise and lift you way up to Captain Kirk's world, or Jean-Luc Picard, you know, whatever. Um, some of you will remember. Uh, and you look down, I guarantee you we will look back at this period when we both knew the molecular effects, we knew the institutional causes, and we recognize that people are literally being killed. Literally being killed. So in poverty terms, right, we know parts, certainly in the UK, I don't know the Swedish context, but I certainly know the UK context, there are parts of the UK which are 20 years life difference between the richest and the poorest. 20 years. If I was to tell you I'm going to take away 10 years of your life, how would you feel? That is what we're almost agreeing to do. I guarantee you, in a future reality, we will look back at this time and recognize it for what it was, where we know the pathways that were hurting people and we didn't do enough about it. So, in this context, I want to put forward to you, rather than imagining getting rid of future human rights, we need to be having a debate about future human rights. Reimagining the notion of equality and justice, but this isn't just self-serving moralism. It's actually about unlocking the full capacity of every citizen in a way that we've not imagined. It's not about imagining humans as bad robots. It's about imagining humans as extraordinary, extraordinary, far more extraordinary than any general artificial intelligence that's ever been created, IBM, Watsons, whatever, more extraordinary than that. Have we unlocked our full capacity? No. What would it mean if we really thought about humans through that lens? What would it mean if we really didn't think about humans as overheads and robots to be controlled, and we thought we could control them in small, simplistic uh, employment contracts of rights and terms? What if we saw humans as a source of creative wealth and value? What if we really started to see in this economy, how do you create this capacity? If we can see that, we can create the capacity to care, to create, to innovate, and democratize those capacities in a way that we've never imagined. And I think these are fundamental. So when you bring these ideas together, what I want to say to you is I think we're in a pathway of a great restructuring. And great restructurings aren't just about the technologists. I think there's some great work happening in startups, and it's really important. But I think great transformations about transformations of every other part of our lives, our institutions, our notion of rights, our notion of actually how our society operates, these have to be reinvented. And it isn't about destroying the case for those things, it's about building the case for those things. And if we're going to build this new future where humans, how we reimagine ourselves, and remember, every age has reimagined what it means to be human in order to reimagine the world around it. Leonardo da Vinci conceptualized the biological, physical human as an individual. I think we're about to reconceptualize what it means to be human in the 21st century. And I guarantee you it won't be an individual. And the other thing I guarantee you won't be a man. Right? How do we imagine ourselves in a participatory world? 
How do you reimagine the boring? And I think the boring conversation is really critical. Because I think if we can reimagine our institutional infrastructures, we can start to imagine tomorrow. And then we can really start to not imagine 21st century problems and think about our 18th century institutions, but really build the 21st century institutions. But this requires an integrated approach, an approach that reimagines all different aspects of our society and building the capacity to innovate around them and building the capacity to experiment simultaneously around them. This requires us to imagine all these things simultaneously. This requires us to reimagine this stack. And unless we can democratize our capacity to care, I don't think we can build this world tomorrow. So with this, I want to leave you with this, which I think is fitting for this conversation. It's a quote out of a brilliant film called Interstellar. I love it. But I think it's really important. Because I would argue the greatest deficit that we have is our deficit of imagining the future. And I think the future is infinite. But if you take the future away from people, all you're left arguing about is the dirt. And I would put forward to you is actually all we're currently arguing about is what share of the dirt that we have between ourselves. Yet, actually, as a civilization, our future is infinite. It is without boundaries. Let's look up and imagine that future. Let's democratize that future. Let's start to build dreams of a really amazing 21st century. I think only then can we take a step forward. And I think the democracy of dreams is where this all begins. With that, I thank you. Thank you so much, Amy. We have time for some questions. You've sent in some questions. I have some as well. Yeah, that was just the size of the universe. Um, Thought we'd start that way, right? <laughs> I, think, I think that's the way. But I, I think it does sort of bring me to my first point, which is how do we teach systems thinking? Because it feels like a lot of, our, of the way a lot of us have been educated, uh, and I think, I suspect, the way our kids are still educated, it is to operate in those 18th yeah. century bureaucracies. I, I think it's a... Well, so one of the things I would say, it's very intuitive. So I think actually what's counterintuitive is how we've been taught. And I think we've been think through silos. We've been thought, taught to think through isolation, seeing the world through in vitro. Even the notion of the private limited stock company is an idea of how we create the isolation. Even the notion of the individual is actually a notion. So we've constructed our reality using these notions of nouns. Even our language is biased towards this notion of nouns and objects. So I think we've been coded over the last three to 400 years to think in a particular way. And I think what we have to start to do is start to slowly and consciously recode and rebuild ourselves. And every, we've done this before, so it's not that it's not possible. I think we have to consciously do it. 
And uh, you know, there are some really brilliant ethnographic studies that have been done, for example, of even taking a painting to a child born in the West um, and saying, how do you see the painting? And they describe you the vase. You show the same painting to a child born in the East, and they describe the context. And then you ask them, what do you see? They describe the vase. So actually, we have been cognitively programmed as society to think that way. And it goes all the way through from language to the notions of individual notions all the way through. So it is a full restructuring. But we have done this before, so I'm, I'm conscious it's possible. What worries me a little bit is that the, a lot of the people who are making the decisions or who are, whose work it is to make the policies real don't think like this yet. Uh, and, and certainly, I mean, the, one of the reasons we're being so stressed by all of this, these catastrophic elections over the past few years, of course, is that that it seems that it doesn't help. You can have a meeting with, with someone who, who is driven by a fundamentally selfish worldview, and they're not going to be interested in creating any change like this. Yeah, I, so I, I would go answer the question slightly differently, which is I think the politicians I've met actually are struggling to build a narrative and build a way to have a different type of conversation. And this is why these conversations are more important than the conversations of politicians right now is how do we build a different way to see these futures? We see our, all of our, if you, look at the, um, if you look at our conversations, so often they are constrained about the idea of the future being slightly less, right? So how we build the conversation is fundamentally, has to be fundamentally different. So I would argue that we have to build a new public conversation, which is what I think you're doing with the conference, that allows for politicians to have different discourses. My argument would be, I think most politicians want to have this conversation. They are currently afraid they don't have the infrastructure and the politic, as in the people, to be part of that conversation. And I think, so this is why the conference is critical. I think as you were demonstrating, this, but this fun, one fundamental part of the solution is this understanding that making, lessening suffering in society is general, making humans suffer less will make us, will make them more productive and cheaper to have as citizens, but also, but, but also will create um, an environment where, where systems can function as intended. Um, and, and it does, unfortunately, this does seem to drive a little bit the, towards the political left. Uh, how would you use this insight, and how would you make that, that something that political conservatives would argue for? So I would say that the political conservatives, I mean, I, I think words like freedom need to be re-embraced. Re but I think we have to create freedom for all. Mm -hmm. And I think we have to talk about actually how to create the capacity for that freedom. And what I suppose I've been trying to say is actually in order to create the freedom for all and unlock the full capacity and create the, capa create the frameworks for everyone's capacity to be unlocked, we have to create a new institutional relationship. So I think these relationships between the left and the right aren't necessarily at odds with each other. They just need to be reframed and re reorganized. And I think for me what's fundamental is two things. One, reimagining that the future is infinite and genuinely believing in that. And then genuinely starting to have belief in actually the foundational capacity of what it means, how extraordinary humans are. And then rebuilding our institutional infrastructure. So our schools, our educational infrastructures were built for an industrial age. How do we regear them for the 21st century? How do we create society for the 21st century? We built all that stuff. We know we can do extraordinary stuff. So the question is we have to reimagine the human development infrastructure for unlocking that capacity. So I think there's two parts of this conversation. One is reconceptualizing 
the human at the center of the story and reconceptualizing the capacity to unlock that value in a completely different way. I think you maybe just answered this, but I'm going to ask you to spell it out. So here's a question from uh, Danina Mahmutovic who asks, what do you say to relatives in not as developed countries that want to do everything that we do in the West, fly, drive, splurge, etc.? They see it as progress when we, actually, when we actually need to live more like them. Hard to deny their desire when the West is the one fucking up. Yeah, um, what do I say? <laughs> I think the conversation in that is, Child, I think the conversation on that is, I'm not sure I can stand on any form of hallowed ground and tell people what not to do. I think what we need to do is remodel and rebuild our behaviors. That's the first thing we can do. And I think if we can build the pathways, look, I think the conversations going on in Vietnam are equally now as progressive as the conversations I would get in places like the UK. So this, this or Taiwan, I mean, I don't know how many of you have seen the Taiwanese digital minister. The digital minister of Taiwan fully records every one of her conversations and puts them online. Extraordinary, right? Every one of our conversations. So this notion of kind of those, I think we're moving to a completely different world already. And we are having these conversations pretty much globally. So the question I think we have to do is how do we move forward? I don't also believe in a scarcity model. I think there is capacity to unlock new, new value and new ways of organizing. Our civilization can grow. It just can't grow the way it's been growing. It can't build the externalities in the way it's been doing. I think as a civilization, we can still become extraordinary and still become richer and more complex in new ways, as we've done. But I think we can no longer build the externalities, whether it's in carbon or whether it's other forms, into our natural landscape. So I think we have to reimagine the future together. But we have to reimagine it not just in LA. We have to reimagine it everywhere. And you know, I would say, how does Malma have a science fiction festival as much as uh, the science fiction festivals and Afrofutures work that's going on around the world. We have to reimagine the future much more progressively. And I suppose part of it is also figuring out how to explain that the future we're building, the next step is going to just, that you can also move directly to that. You can skip all the things that suck about our lifestyle and just move directly into a lifestyle where people are actually happier and more, more fulfilled as well. I think we have to create the capacity to be able to people to think like that. And that's where I think... I think places like Sweden, Denmark, and uh, the Nordic countries actually have a massive opportunity. You have a massive institutional infrastructure, which, and you have, still have some capacity of societal trust and societal infrastructure to take that next leap. And I think that next leap is about recognizing, and you know, if I, when I was in Norway, what, one of the extraordinary things that I saw was actually, you know, welfare is not seen as a cost, welfare is seen as an investment. And even that is breaking down in places like Norway because of actually migration issues and self, not, not insufficient self-similarity. But if we see welfare as an investment, I think we have a completely different conversation of the future. And we need to see that possibility together. Very good. Thank At you. the ConfQA, you can find, or under that hashtag, you can find a ton of questions for you. India, of course, is on Twitter. Uh, so you can also continue this conversation there. Thank Dear you very friends, India Ohio. <laughs>